Marcus Marcus controls the power and wealth of a vast military and religious empire. Yet one horrific crime threatens to destroy everything in his world. Arrowed by drugs and grief, Marcus Marcus begins a trans-dimensional journey that will ultimately force him to confront a dark and devastating truth. Chapter 31 A Wicked Heresy The final part of the Songs of Departing tells of how the four lost and frightened divine children Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune sang words of comfort to each other. So sweet were their voices, and so perfect the harmonising of their notes, that the music blended into the form of a beautiful sphere, from which all the divinities emerged fully formed. It was they who, having been born from such a holy place, named the sphere Earth. Whilst local traditions embellish or add elements to the songs of the departing, not least all the fun sado porn stuff, across the vastness of the three zones of humanity, there is absolute agreement that this is how Earth, the heavenly paradise, came into existence. Visible Earthers, however, believe that in addition to the divine Earth, a physical earth was also simultaneously created. Just as bizarre, visible earthers claim that the human race originated on this one planet. This denial of the uniqueness of the one true and divine earth is a pretty big snob to the divinities, suggesting as it does that the spread of humans across the stars was driven by actions of fallible men and women. Such beliefs are of course a raving nonsense that defy all scientific, mathematical and philosophical evidence. For one planet to be the origin of each and every single human ever born, well, such a planet would have to be as big as a galaxy and have existed for a billion, billion years. To add to their folly, visible earthers are adamant that the four children of space and the queen of the universe, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, transformed into huge gas planets. Yet the competing gravitational pulls of four such planets would have made it impossible for humans to achieve the leap into hyperspace that is fundamental to any journey between the stars. That is why many pious humans regard visible earthers as idiots or curios to be pointed at and sniggered about. Mm.
Most humans, though, give little thought to such heresy. There being such an abundance of divinities, saints, angels, heroes, and other exalted beings, each with a plethora of often contradictory forms of worshipful engagement, that the perverse beliefs of the visible earthers are scarcely noticed amongst the multifarious reek and roar of incense, sacrifices, songs, chants, ecstatic dancing and screeching of true and pious adoration. However, across the three zones of humanity, many great and learned individuals and institutions, not least the augurs of Enfashka, have come to understand that visible earthers are far more dangerous than mere eccentrics. It is not just the acts of terror and slaughter committed in the former war zone by followers of the heresy that is troubling. Their heretical beliefs not only insult the gods and goddesses, but in denying the role of the divine in spreading humanity across the galaxies, every visible earther is in fact guilty of atheism. It matters little that visible earthers appear to pray to the gods. Their prayers are empty of faith and thus worse than lies. Their heresy also undermines the foundations of society. Their denial of the uniqueness of the gods is likewise a denial of those, like me for instance, empowered by those gods to rule over humanity. For all this seemingly harmless and idiotic naivety of the heretics, there is no escaping the fact that when the perverse tenets of their cult are challenged, conflict results. Blood is spilled and bodies broken, which begs the question, what should be done about the visible earthers? When left unchallenged, their influence grows. When attacked, their influence grows. So perplexing is this conundrum that the elite of the three zones of humanity spend a considerable amount of time from childhood onwards fretting about it. When I was an infant, an ethics and piety teacher called Ashling would come to my kindergarten once a month to talk about proper worship and the evils of heresy. She liked to compare visible earthers to a putrid, gangrous wound in the healthy body of human civilization, for which no antibody has yet been found. She would spend a considerable amount of time going into detail about rotten flesh, its smell and colour, using slides and scratch and sniff boards to add emphasis to the talk. Afterwards, we children were given crayons and asked to draw our solutions to the visible earther heretics. Gold stars were given out to children with the most imaginative 
and gory solutions. And yet, in spite of all this, here I was, in the medical bay of the wolfcraft wee scunner, watching heretics listening quietly, some nodding, as Kokani the auger spoke to them. My field of expertise, he was saying, is collecting religious folklore from across in Feshka. If you wish, I can open up my database to you. You can examine the tales I have collected from Narn. I doubt they could replace the knowledge of your lost celebrants, but there may be something that would help the living give the dead a proper farewell. We cannot invite you to our ceremony, growled the man with the charred arm. But we will mention you in the prayers for the living. Thank you, replied Kokani. That would be a very gracious thing to do. The very lack of strength and volume in the augur's voice lent it a compelling authenticity. I felt that, for the first time in my life, I was in the presence of someone who was utterly incapable of dissembling or conspiring. And whilst lies and whispers are the tools of power and security, somehow their utter absence now made me feel safer. I had spent many hours fleeing an unknown but very real threat, yet at that moment the weak-sounding words and humble gestures of Kokani seemed to me a greater proof against attack than any amount of security personnel, spies, guns, cannons or missiles. A slight movement of air brushed against the nape of my neck. Reluctantly, I turned away from Kokani and looked towards the doors of the medical bay. There stood a young woman, wearing a uniform of blue trousers and short-sleeved shirt. She was tall with broad shoulders and her face and arms olive-skinned. Maybe because I was still enmeshed in a dwarm of cynicism-free worshipfulness, but she seemed to me the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. Her lips were curved in a slight smile, her dark eyes clever and appraising. She stood for a minute listening to Kokani, and her smile widened. As she looked at the auger, her brow creased, and her smiling angelic lips silently yet distinctly formed one word. Wanker, she said and gave a wicked, gorgeous smile. My mouth dried up, my limbs shook, and I instantly forgot Kokani.
Thanks for listening to this latest chapter of Marcus Marcus and the Hurting Heart. Stay tuned for future chapters and mind tell your friends and relations and ancient enemies about the podcast. If you want to know more about my work, you can follow me on rabfultonstories.weebly.com My Instagram is at Celtic Tales Galway and my Twitter is at Havering Rab.